0: It's Biter Worldwide for the week of July 27th, 2008. I'm Bill Blynn with an hour's worth of technology news in far less than an hour because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. When TechSmith released Snagit several years ago, the words I said, and I quote, were, you won't find a better screen capture program anywhere, at least until TechSmith develops Snagit 8. And when version 8 came along, I said, and I quote, How does TechSmith keep making this product better? Well, now I have Snagit 9, and once I got past some initial problems, it was clear that TechSmith continues to develop an application that has no rival. And the good news is that someday there may be a Mac version. I mentioned some rough spots, and yes, there were some. Version 9 of Snagit adds a lot of new features. It updates the interface, fixes some rough edges with the previous version. For example, the ability to capture a scrolling window has improved greatly. In version 8, this was a great feature when it worked, but it didn't do that very often. Another interface example, Snagit now looks like Office 2007 applications with an office like Ribbon. And the new interface moved the finish button from the far left side to the far right side, and that actually puzzled me for a while, until I found it over there. The Snagit 9 image editor is a lot more capable than what was available in the previous version, and there are lots more options for annotating images. In addition, you can have multiple images open simultaneously. That may not seem like a lot, but if you do a lot of screen captures, and you may occasionally have to do some combinations, wow, that's a pretty big feature. If you have an image with a lot of white space around it, you can crop it by dragging the four crop handles, or you can just use the trim tool to perform that action automatically. And there's even an oops eliminator. In previous versions, you could capture an image, forget to save it, and then capture a new image that would replace the first image. Well, now Snagit immediately saves files, and it keeps track of information, for example, which application it was that you were using when you captured the image. That makes it possible for users to search for an application name and find all of the images associated with that program. This is great if you're documenting something, and it rates a genuine wow for me. So once you have an image, you can apply a flag to it. Think of flags as categories, like documentation, cats, cats, Cartoons, whatever types of images you capture. And you can also associate keywords with each image. So if you use Snagit a lot, this makes finding images a lot faster. Right out of the box, and as usual, Snagit's default menu uses huge icons to display the kind of capture that will be performed. That may be great for new users, but I have lots of different capture scenarios. I'd just rather have them in a menu list. So I turn off the big icons. TechSmith continues to offer Snagit on a 30-day trial period. The company can do this because they know that anybody who needs the ability to perform screen captures will, within 30 days, become so attached to Snagit that they won't want to let go. But Snagit 9 is not perfect. There's a lot to like about the interface, for example, too, but there's some to dislike. Snagit uses the ribbon interface that users of Microsoft Office 2007 will find familiar. The problem with the change is that some modifications seem not to have been thought out very well. The zoom command, for example. If I'm viewing an image in the editor, I often want to look at an enlarged view. Normally, I'll have the draw ribbon open because I'm adding text, arrows, callouts, or shading to the image. Initially, I thought that zooming in required me to click the view button to open the view ribbon, then click on the zoom menu to drop down a list of zoom options, click on the magnification I wanted, and then click to return to the draw ribbon. When it's time to get back to the standard view, I thought I had to repeat that process. Well, the good news is, that's nonsense. There are keystrokes that make the process easier and faster. The plus key enlarges, the minus key reduces clever but it does this only in large step increments the size i really want never seems to be available so i hope that finer grained zoom will be available in a later version and then there's the problem of escaping when i don't want to in previous versions of snagit users could cancel an action by pressing the escape key now the default action of pressing the escape key when you're in the editor is to close the editor fortunately there is a setting that controls this and restores what seems to me to be a more logical arrangement. Then there's the not-quite-a-full-backup backup. As with previous versions, Snagit allows users to save their settings. This makes moving settings from one machine to another easy. For example, if, as I did, you buy a copy of Snagit for use at the office, and you want to take the settings from the review copy into the office to use. I found that most of the settings were saved except for the default location of files. No matter how much I fiddled with the settings, I wasn't able to get Snagit to write the drive and directory to the XML file it uses to transfer settings. I had expected to have to edit the XML file on the office machine because I save files to the C drive there, but I save them to the D drive at home. But there was nothing to edit. It just wasn't there. And then there's this problem with anonymous file names. Snagit places all open images in a filmstrip-like display below the editor window, but it identifies them only by file type. If I have a series of images, each may look a lot like the other, particularly at thumbnail size. The files are identified only by file type. I can hover the mouse over the thumbnail and wait for a second or so, Then Snagit shows me a slightly larger image that I might be able to figure out what it is. But the good thing is, that image does include the file name. Well, guys, the file name ought to be part of the basic display, or the name of the selected image should be on the status bar. There's a lot of wasted space down there. Use the status bar. Now, that may seem like a lot of annoyances. It may seem like I don't like the program. (laughs) Wrong. Wrong. In the past, I've not been able to find anything to complain about in Snagit, but this time around, the changes are so numerous and so radical that there were bound to be some rough edges. I'm sure that TechSmith will resolve these problems in coming versions. Alone or together, they don't outweigh the advantages of the new version. On the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com, you'll see a series of exchanges between me and TechSmith's tech support folks. When I work with a company's technical support representatives, I try to avoid telling them that I'm a journalist who's working on a review. I know that there are ways that tech support might be made aware of this, but in most cases, the support team isn't aware that I'm anybody other than a standard end user. So the support I receive is exactly the kind of support you should receive because of changes to the way Snagit works initially i thought files weren't being saved properly they weren't being saved with the names i expected that was the initial problem that i reported to techsmith the conversation that took place over about four days covered that problem and some other things that popped up during the time i think you might find it interesting to read the tech support messages from techsmith in short this is the way technical support should work Bottom line time. Normally, Snagit gets the maximum number of cats. In this case, it would be five. Eh, not this time. Four. That's still a very good rating, and it indicates a product that works very well, has a lot of really great features, but also has a few problems. Snagit 9 works only with Windows XP and Vista systems, so if you're still using an earlier version of Windows or a Mac, you're out of luck. TechSmith is said to be working on a version for OS 10, though. 50 bucks for new users, upgrade from any previous version, and that's all the way back to version 1.0 for just $20. For more information, you'll want to visit the TechSmith website, and there is a link to there from the TechBiter Worldwide website. And then there's tech support the way it shouldn't be handled. In May, I wrote about hidden dangers in Skype. At that time, I had written to Skype's public relations department to report my concerns and to ask if I had missed anything in my negative assessment. I sent a follow-up request in July, after not hearing anything for two months, and I finally received an answer. It was a canned answer. The response revealed an additional setting that I could change, one that wasn't covered in the documentation and one that is set incorrectly for anybody who has any concerns about security. In my opinion, Skype is an unacceptable security risk unless the user changes these default settings. But even with the settings that I described on May 18th, I received yet another unwanted commercial intrusion from a phone sex operation. The message was able to get through because, in Skype's words, the privacy settings do not let people who are not in your contact list send you a chat message or call you via Skype, but you can still receive new contact invitations. And they say they do this on purpose to allow friends who you haven't yet added to your contact list to contact you. Well, that's moronic. This should be disabled by default, or at the very least, there should be a clear warning provided during the installation to tell the user what they're allowing to happen. I use Skype for my purposes. I don't particularly want people who don't know me to find me on Skype but that's what Skype allows by default. And I mentioned a support problem. I conversed over several days with two different people. And what I got back, in both cases, was essentially a canned message. And I know it's a canned message because each of them said exactly the same thing. Word for word. Including the typo. So Skype's tech support is a good example of the way it shouldn't be done. It's probably not going to make a lot of improvement in the way I write or the number of typos that I make per article, but my keyboard is a lot cleaner now. It was so dirty that last week I had a really basic choice clean it or plant potatoes between the keys. Now, I could have just bought a new keyboard, but I don't use one of those $3 keyboards that come with most computers. I prefer the Microsoft Natural Computer. That's the one that's bent in the middle. I'd been putting off cleaning it for months, thinking it would be a difficult process. As it turned out, I was pleasantly surprised. First, getting the keys off wasn't as difficult as I thought it would be. Back in the days of early keyboards, you needed a special tool if you wanted to avoid breaking the keys. Previously, I had pried a key or two off just to see how much trouble it would be, and discover that it really can be done just using a small screwdriver for leverage. You have to be a little bit careful, but it's not at all difficult. The only keys that present much of a challenge are the space bar and those keys that are double or triple wide, the shift, tab, delete, enter, those keys. In addition to prying them loose, you have to free a U-shaped piece of metal rod that acts as a stabilizer for the key when you don't hit it dead center. Additionally, the space bar may have a couple of small springs, Mine did, but not all keyboards do. I took a couple of other keyboards apart just to check. So the first step is to remove all of the keys. If you see any springs, put them somewhere safe. I missed the springs from the space bar, dumped them right into the container with all the rest of the keys, and then poured water on top of them. So then you're going to pour detergent into the container, add some hot water, and let the keys sit while you return to the keyboard to vacuum out whatever's in there. In my case, I found enough fur to reupholster a small cat and enough breadcrumbs for a tuna casserole. I vacuumed out all that gunk, wiped down the keyboard casing with cleaner. You want to avoid getting liquid into the slots that hold the keys. They're somewhat water-resistant in most cases, but not waterproof. Then it's back to the keys. Wash them, rinse them, put them somewhere to dry. Put them somewhere to dry that the cat won't notice, because cats consider things like keycaps to be toys. The same can be said for small children. That is to say, they think of keycaps as toys, not that cats think of small children as toys. But you knew that. So when I dumped the soapy water out of the container, I noticed a spring floating toward the drain. I recovered it, thought I had perhaps lost the other one. The good news is the space bar doesn't really need two springs. It gets along just fine with one. It would probably be okay with none. And later, when I cleaned another Microsoft natural keyboard, I found that there was only one spring there. So maybe there is only one to begin with. next challenge is to put the keys back on. Some of them are pretty easy. F1 through F12, all in a row, right at the top. The numeric keypad is easy. But do you remember where Control, Alt, Start, Shift, and Enter go? And did you know that there are two Control keys and two Alt keys that are not interchangeable? Slightly different sizes left to right. And how well do you remember Touch Typing Class? The good news is I got all the keys back in the proper places, mixed up only the four arrow keys, but that was a problem easily remedied. Actually, I noticed a couple of days later I had gotten one of the keys, one of the punctuation keys, back upside down. That was easy to fix, too. I wasn't going to provide any before and after pictures because I don't think I want anybody to see what that keyboard actually looked like. But then I brought the keyboard from the office home to clean it. It wasn't quite as dirty. In fact, it was nowhere near as dirty. So there are some pictures from the office keyboard on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Jeremy Kaplan and Sasha Sagan had an interesting article in a recent copy of PC Magazine. 21 great technologies that failed. 10 of them PC-based, 11 of them Mac-based. Some of them I remember. Some of them I had completely forgotten. Web TV, for example. I'm not so sure that I would put that in the great category. Certainly it failed, but I'm not so sure it was great. Tablet PCs. There's one that's great, and I'm not quite sure that that one has failed either. It's taking off very slowly. But I don't think you can quite yet say that it's failed. Those people who have tried tablet PCs often like them. The next generation file system, WinFS, developed... Well, started to be developed in the 1990s. That has been a large problem for Microsoft. It was planned to be part of Windows 95. Never quite made it. Or Windows 98. Or 2000. Or XP. Or Vista. They're still working on it. Sidewalk.com. Uh, this is a great idea. Well, maybe it was a great idea. Didn't work when Microsoft tried it. Google's done okay on that. How about OS2? Users of OS2 are passionate about that operating system. It was originally a project between IBM and Microsoft, and then Microsoft decided that Windows was the way to go. And there are others. Take a look at the TechBiter Worldwide website for a link to the PC Magazine article. How about over on the Apple side? Well... Didn't get on there until halfway down the list, but there's the Newton from 1993. Was this a great idea? It certainly failed. I'm not so sure it was a good idea, though. It was way ahead of its time in terms of what it tried to do. In fact, it couldn't do what it wanted to do because the technology just wasn't there. and The designers were a little overly impressed with what they thought they could make the thing do. It ended up being the butt of a lot of jokes. The Mac G4 Cube, developed in 1999, small form-factor PC, didn't have a very good reliability rating. And then, you remember this one? In 1994, the Mac Quadra 610. It was a DOS-compatible machine from Apple. Yeah. Apple actually released some Macs with Intel processors back in those days, in the 1990s. Take a look at the rest of the list. I think you'll find it amusing. And it looks like Samsung has done it again. If you still think a 400 to 1 or 1,000 to 1 contrast ratio is impressive for monitors, you are in for a bit of a surprise. Samsung says it has come up with some new HD TV models with a 1 million to one contrast ratio according to a news release from the company the new 950 display line combines improved led backlighting with improvements to the panel and image processing the result is that high contrast ratio oh and by the way the thing also has a 120 hertz refresh rate that is that's a wow factor most men don't see flicker with refresh rates above about 75 hertz most women don't see flicker with refresh rates above 90 hertz pushing it to 120 hertz essentially eliminates flicker as a problem for everybody and it eliminates problems with scenes that change quickly Samsung's new monitors have built-in Ethernet jacks that can receive images from PCs and consoles. USB ports are built in to allow digital content to be played locally. The 950 series has four HDMI ports. It's going to be available in 46-inch and 55-inch models. Get out your wallet. These things aren't cheap. $3,200 for the 46-inch model, $4,200 for the 55-inch model. They'll be in stores in August. Are you ready? Thanks for listening. This has been TechBiter Worldwide for the week of July 27, 2008. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com, and you can send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.